0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Herbst, co editor with Simon Lovegrove of Brexit and Financial Regulation, published in March by Oxford University Press. Jonathan is the global head of financial services regulation at Norton Rose Fulbright, a global law firm he joined as a partner in 2002. Before that, he was head of European Law at the Financial Services Authority. He's a leading practitioner in the field of British and EU financial services law and regulation and specializes in advice around the structuring of banks and markets, custody and clearing, and the regulatory aspects of acquisitions and disposals. Since the referendum four years ago that decided the UK should leave the European Union, Jonathan has become a leading commentator on Brexit. He co-authored a report for the Financial Services Forum on regulatory equivalence, a concept we will be discussing in some detail today, and gave evidence to the inquiry led by the House of Lords EU Financial Affairs Subcommittee into the impact of Brexit on financial services. Anyone who thinks this sounds a little esoteric should bear in mind that financial services account for 7% of British economy's total output and more than a million jobs. In just four months' time, the UK will leave the transitional stage of EU withdrawal, so changing overnight the regulatory environment for the whole sector, everything from banks to insurers to pension funds. For this new book, Jonathan and his co-editor have pulled together 26 lawyers from 12 law firms and barristers' chambers to write 15 chapters, each covering a critical aspect of the Brexit process or market segment sure to be affected by it. For anyone in the field, Lawyers, officials, consultants, or journalists, it is going to be an essential reference work. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, I know that um, there's been an update of European banking and financial law by uh, Henschins and Joya uh, Caribolese this year. And inevitably this includes a fair amount of Brexit, but to my knowledge, yours is the only book exclusively on this very important subject. First, is that correct? I think that's right. Um, and second, could you take us through how this book came to life? Was it your idea? Did it come from the publisher? Did it start from a conference or a workshop? or can you it's switch? actually a very
1: good, very good question. I think it was actually OUP that got in contact. Um, and in a way, not surprising, because it's such a sort of hot topic. And yeah. as you said, given the significance of financial services to the British economy, so I think it was OUP, and then we got into dialogue with them.
0: Right, and and you led with it, or well, you you and Simon Lovegrove led it.
1: Well, I mean, uh, Simon, I should explain um, is my is our global head of um, uh, know how in relation to financial services. So we sort of worked on it together. Uh, uh, obviously. Uh, The global head, and so I led it from the sort of practitioner side, and Simon uh, has been uh, working with me throughout.
0: And how how did you choose who you wanted to uh, take part?
1: So it's really difficult. I mean, there's some great practitioners out there. We we tried to get a um, a really good sort of cross section of the practitioners in the market, and uh, not everyone said yes, but most people did. So that's what it was. And apologies to anyone who wasn't included. It wasn't (laughs) deliberate. Yes,
0: (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it's like an Oscar speech. Um, I mean, the, the timing of publication must have been pretty fraught. I mean, you published in March, and the Treasury, uh, not wanting to give you a hand, they waited till June to publish their uh, set out in writing their regulatory intentions. If you'd published in July, for example, if you published now, w- would much have been altered, do you think?
1: Yeah. So, so let me answer your question a slightly different way. The yeah. truthful answer is it was really difficult to decide the publication date. We actually originally targeted, believe it or not, a whole year earlier. Of course, not predicting that we would have the endless toing and throwing. It's difficult to look back at the mm. year and a half, the endless toing and froing on withdrawal agreement in Parliament. And so to write a book like this, the key difficulty then was you know, what are your assumptions? And given the lead time for the book, very, very difficult. So I think the the, the honest answer is any point in time that you publish is going to change and so in the end we just had to take a view and pick a date and put some, pick some assumptions that's what we did
0: right um yeah i mean as you say th- things have changed and, and continue to do so i mean um you and and simon lovegrove in the first two chapters of the book you give us a potted history of the last four years of of the positioning of the sector and the negotiations between, actually the negotiations between the UK and the EU and the negotiations within the UK government. Um, could you basically take us through, could you give us a summary of the, a potted history of the, the, those four years and where we are now in the negotiations as we approach January?
1: Sure. So in some ways it's actually quite difficult to remember where we started again. <laughs> So far. So I think the realities are, and I think it's important to remember, you know, the May government had a very different approach to the current government. Um, they wanted their original negotiated agreement, which eventually they actually managed to complete the negotiations with the EU. And there were really two bits of that. There was the, the formal, you might call it the transitional withdrawal agreement, which is fairly recognisable in what we've now got, which was effectively a, basically a standstill. Essentially, or for a period after the, the UK formally leaving the EU, it would be bound by all the rules for financial services purposes, just for these purposes, but for others as well, and also benefit from the rights. And that was sort of part one of the negotiations. I mean, it went on for hundreds of pages, but in, in a nutshell, that's what, it, that's what it was. Now, of course, as we know, that agreement in itself took... A year, year and a half to negotiate and is extremely detailed if anybody wishes to read it. However, there was also a second really key bit of what they negotiated, which was the political declaration, which, although it wasn't formally legally binding, was, you know, looked at in minute detail at the time. And there were three or four paragraphs on financial services. And that was a really key aspect. So that, that's the history of it. As anyone who You know, followed the parliamentary process in the UK knows the toings and froings over a 12-month period that led up to the failure to get that agreement passed in its original form. Uh, You know, you could write a history book on, but probably not for today. But Mm -hmm. that—that is essentially where we started, and of course, where we ended after the new government uh, was elected. Uh, Well, Boris Johnson came in earlier, but once they had a majority after the election, obviously. A form of the withdrawal agreement with some tweaks has passed. Um, and effectively, that's where we're at now. We're now in this um, year transitional period.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, his brother, Joe, uh, uh, Joe Johnson, the prime minister's brother, uh, said last year that, quote, one of the UK's only globally competitive sectors is being thrown under a bus by the Brexit process. And he, he added, how can we've heard so little from a sector that stands to lose so much? Do you think, again, doing some history here? Do you think the sector mismanaged its lobbying efforts at the beginning of of the process, from essentially from the summer of twenty sixteen? Why why did it never make or apparently never made the case for continued passporting inside the European Economic Area, even before Theresa May's uh, landmark speech at Lancaster House in in January twenty seventeen?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. My my personal view is that's a bit unfair to the city institutions and lobbying groups. I mean, I think they're obviously, as as always in these things, were slightly differing views. But the vast predominant view in the city, and as lobbied by the various trade bodies and, and the corporation and others, and City UK, was that they did want to have a form of Whether you call it passporting, I think that was always a bit unrealistic. But let's let's call it equivalence, Mm. uh, by which I mean both under those directives and regulations where there is an equivalence assessment already, and also some additional points, for example, on banking. I think the city's view was that it did want that. I think maybe your question is a slightly different one, which is why was that voice not heard? Yeah, and why was that not the priority politically in the negotiations? And that's almost a different issue around the. Aftermath of the financial crisis and the fact that perhaps the city and the banking sector does not have the voice it once had, and also that the government was concerned with, you know, let's call it the in quotes real economy, uh, and so you had you had that sort of issue, and and whether almost the question could be a different one, which was was the city realistic in wanting that comprehensive equivalence deal? But I don't I don't think it would be a fair criticism to say it didn't try and lobby for it. It did. It just mm. didn't get it.
0: Well, it, it lobbied for mutual recognition, um, but I, uh, unless I just don't remember it well, I don't remember the city ever getting behind, for example, when um, there was a push for uh, a Norway Plus model by some, yeah. by, by a fair number of MPs, actually. I didn't see the city getting behind that, even though that would have ensured pure passporting and wouldn't have required yeah. any an, anything else. It, Is it something I missed, or did it just? No, I I think that's fair,
1: but I think there's a very good reason for that. I think to be fair to the city, and this has been one of the dilemmas throughout the last four years. In clearly, the city institutions did not want to be seen to be big P political, Mm. or even maybe small P political, and therefore I think they were you know treading a tightrope between, on the one hand, quite recently making the points that are relevant to the sector, so so. If you think about wanting a smooth, let's call it single markets, not perhaps the right word, but you smooth operation of provision of services cross border. You could achieve that through the Norway plus model, Mm -hmm. DEA. You could achieve that through comprehensive mutual recognition. And let's call it equivalence plus beyond the, what is in the European directives and regulations, the key. Either of those could, could achieve that, but broadly speaking. And I think the city, understandably, was very reluctant to be drawn into an explicit political position. Because I think, I think it's important there, and it's difficult, given we've got a strong majority government, to remember the frenetic period after 2016, where whatever you said was interpreted as in a deeply political way, and there was this sort of huge division in the country. And I think that's the context of why the city went the route that it did.
0: Mm. I mean, could you outline for us, because these are going to be key concepts in in our discussion, um, the idea of mutual recognition and the idea of of equivalence. I mean, you have a chapter in the book by um, Aaron uh, Srivastava and Nina Moffat from Paul Hastings on equivalence. But could you outline the two ideas for us and why, in your opinion, mutual recognition, which is what the city pressed for at the beginning of the talks, really got nowhere?
1: Yeah. So um, absolutely. And, and people use these concepts in slightly varying ways. So just starting with mutual recognition, I think the concept there would be that the, um, the two sides would have their system and they would you know, mutually recognize the, um, the other. And on that basis, there would be cross-border uh, freedom of services. That's sort of one concept very closely linked to equivalence but not identical because you could have a mutual recognition where one accepts that the provisions in the, relative, in the respective sides are not equivalent. So equivalence, on the other hand, in its technical sense, certainly as contemplated by, for example, Mifir and Emir and there are various other um, regulations and directives that talk about this, would be, in its classic form, the European Commission, and I guess the other way would be the same, recognizing that the UK regime is equivalent, I was going to say in outcome, that's an open question, whether it has to be equivalent in um, detail A, B, substance, or C, outcome, open question. Now, clearly, the two in line with each other to the extent that you only grant mutual recognition where there is equivalence. That's an open question. Um, So that's point one. On your question, why did mutual recognition not and get there well I think the technical answer to that if you speak to the EU side um, and to some degree the UK side as well was really to do with the the great debates about autonomy mm. and the concern that anything that in quotes binds I mean just let's go with the EU side for a moment anything that binds the Commission and the European institutions undermines the single market in technical terms and undermines the treaty that's the that's the sort of formal legal reason that was given, which was why the UK, uh, I think it was in sort of um, June, July of the the last year, the the May government then came up with a sort of revised sort of set of concepts in the Treasury um, slides that were produced publicly, which was effectively to want a form of recognition but respecting the autonomy of the two sides that was where the uk then went to but i think the reason the original let's call it hard-baked mutual recognition didn't didn't work was exactly this point on autonomy
0: so so you you feel that the what really held things up was was issues of principle at high political level rather than details of regulation or anything of that kind
1: I think that'd be going too far. I mean, I think you actually, as always in the Brexit discussions, probably have a mix, quite a complicated mix of different factors. There was definitely and remains the, the remain questions of principle. So, so certainly the EU side had this point of what you call it, principle or a particular position which said it can't be identical. Number one, it can't be identical to access to the single market. And number two, you have to have the Commission and other European institutions having autonomy. Mm. It's fair to say, as the UK government's complexion also changed, that concept of autonomy also became important on the UK side. And as we've seen, we, we won't talk about the present yet, but if you if you see how things have evolved, that's become quite an important theme. So that point of principle has been there. I think it is also true that underlying it, there's a much more a political, small people political or big p political point, which is you know clearly. If the two sides were to grant um, mutual recognition or equivalence or whatever you want to call it, in isolation for this sector, which is such a key sector, how does that play with the rest of the negotiation? So, I think, as always in the Brexit debate, you've actually got two, you know, three or four layers on the tectonic plates, yeah. uh, which are coming together and need to be disentangled.
0: Yeah, I, I, and do you think? There, I mean, you, di- you, you differentiated there, I guess, between the two, the two governments, the May government and, and the Johnson government. Um, do you think that underlying the EU approach is a question of trust? So, f- for example, when the Treasury published its, uh, uh, its, uh, proposals around regulation after Brexit, uh, in June, as you, as you mentioned, the idea seemed to be to, um, as they call it, to have outcome-based equivalence. So the the idea is that you would have the ability to diverge on regulation if you wanted to, but with basically the same outcome. Do you think the reason the EU, one of the reasons the EU is reluctant to accept that, is because they basically trust this government less than they did the previous government not to unilaterally diverge?
1: I think that's whether you couch it like that or not I think yeah. the reality is that yes they, uh, the government's been the current government has been very clear that mm-hmm. in certain areas and there have been a few examples of this already for example the um, settle, settlement disciplines under the uh, CSDR um, that they they will not necessarily have the same approach and it's very interesting it's just worth playing this back if one looks back at the political declaration negotiated by the main government but, uh, although it does not say that there will be literal equivalence. As you rightly say, it talks about equivalence based on outcomes. I think the understanding at the time was that the UK and the EU would, broadly speaking, have a, a, a very, very similar regime okay mm-hmm. like, there were some questions that needed to be negotiated around if it had gone ahead on that basis around what the future would look like, how you would deal with smoothing the passage of changes et cetera et cetera but I think it was a very different outlook to the current government where whether, whether it is because the EU is not negotiating from their side or it's because of a point of principle, but whatever one thinks the reason is, it is a different outlook. And I think the Treasury paper in June this year, as you rightly say, mm. was a harbinger of a very different potential approach to regulation.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, as, as we were saying, this is, this is a lot of this is history now and, uh, passporting and mutual recognition that those ships seem to have sailed and, It seems to me the British government is focusing on two negotiating goals now. The first is to secure this equivalence ruling from the EU. And the second is to, and this is a a bigger project, I guess, which is to change the EU's equivalence regime, perhaps with other third country partners to make it more predictable and consultative. Looks as though the equivalence ruling the, on the EU side will now slip into 2021. Uh, why is that, and will it matter in legal and business terms, in, in your opinion? So
1: both very good questions. So, so on, I think on the first, uh, I mean, as you know, the official position of the Commission, as they stated in their paper and papers in June, is you know don't expect equivalence anytime soon. <laughs> Essentially, on yeah. the key the key dockets. I mean, whether one takes that as a statement of intent or a shorter-term political, uh, practical, uh, pragmatic statement, I think is an open question, but I think everyone is assuming for the moment that 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 could be their final position. I mean, just put a caveat in that. If there were to be an overall deal on fisheries and other things, who knows, that could open up that discussion. But. I don't think anyone would be wise to assume that it's inevitably going to happen, which leads to your second question, which is what are the practical implications? I think in the context of the, the larger institutions, it's important to remember they've all had to work on the basis of no-deal planning for mm-hmm. the last four years. I mean, both the PRA and the FCA have forced them to do that, and the ECB, the European institutions. And so from a technical perspective, it is largely reflective of the plan that they are already on Mm. and so i think in in one sense you could say well it shouldn't be too dramatic because if there is no equivalence at the end of the year um, then you know that's pretty much what everyone's been assuming anyway in their um, regulatory planning and commercial planning what that does leave open is whether it will lead to them um you know realizing their plans putting them into action more quickly i don't know the answer to that. But my sense, and it's always difficult to predict, is that there is a lot of truth in that point, and therefore the fact that regulators have forced institutions to work on that basis should smooth the process. Mm.
0: And I mean, as a practicing lawyer, does that could you envisage there being um, you know practical day to day problems if there is if there is this period of legal uncertainty between non-grant of equivalence and granting of equivalence?
1: Well, I, what is certainly true is it's going to be complicated. But then I think, but 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 then I think, if you look at the work we've been doing, and I'm sure my colleagues in other firms have been doing, it, there are almost two or three forms of it. You have the conversation around what would the big equivalence thing look like. That's mm. a small part of the discussion. You then have, I think, a much more important part of the conversation, which is let us assume now there is not going to be any immediate equivalence. What does that mean for our business? And if you're a bank or an asset manager or a broker, what does that mean for our business? You know, What do we do into the UK? What do we do into Europe here, into the EU? And in, importantly, in which EU jurisdictions? And let's be absolutely precise. And the realities are that most of the uh, medium-sized, larger institutions have done lots of analysis saying, well, okay, you know, We only deal with this kind of client, this kind of jurisdiction. In that jurisdiction, there's a transition, or there isn't a transition, or we'll rely on, you know, double hatting, reverse solicitation, or whatever, or we won't have those clients anymore, or we'll set something up in the EU. So a large number of those discussions have been had. I'm not saying it's perfect, Mm. and I'm not saying anyone is anticipating complete certainty. But the interesting thing, and this is a big difference between now and let's say a year and a half ago, is there just feels to me like there's a lot less panic about this. Now, that could be because in the meantime, we've had the COVID crisis. <laughs> and therefore, you know, bre- Brexit's really bad. But then there's something even worse that's come along, uh, which, you know, is a psychological point that it's true. Or it could be that people just have done an awful lot of the analysis I've just referred to. And so they've sort of ended up with their Swiss cheese analysis and they kind of accept it. And I think it could be a bit of both.
0: Yeah, I wondered that too, um, uh, and I had assumed that it, a lot of it simply was people were very focused on COVID. But they, I, I saw this um, survey by EY in in January that looked at the plans for um, financial institutions to to move business into the EU during the second half of 2019, and it showed that that had already slowed down, which does seem to confirm your suggestion that the people. Have basically done their planning or done the bulk of their planning already yeah
1: i think that i think that's right i mean we, we have lots of clients i'm sure there are many others who they've they've created an entity in the eu yeah. there may be questions left and there are questions left about you know how much business you move back to the uk or you move into the eu what will be the attitude the uk authorities will the uk start to close its borders and all those sorts of things will be dynamic i don't think anyone's suggesting that that um, firms are not going to need to keep a very close eye on developments, not just leading up to the end of the year, but beyond. But I think most institutions not full have got a degree of planning in place, which means that the panic of two years ago or 18 months ago just doesn't feel the same. Now that could all change, of
0: course. Mm. Yeah. I'm just moving on to where, where things may develop from now on. Um, I mean, the question that's always struck me, really since the beginning, is um, what it is that, that that people want. What is the di- it, the whole idea of this is to have the ability to diverge, diverge in terms of regulation. And when I look, for example, at MiFID II, the Second Markets in Financial Instruments Directive, which is not exactly loved by traders or, and certainly not by independent research providers. It, but it does seem to be quite liked by British regulators. And in their chapter on method, um, in your book, Nico Leslie and Aaron Taylor say there's unlikely to be sudden legislative change. So anyway, that's a long winded way of me saying, what what do you think it is that people want to change? Because the, the obvious one, for example, would be to remove the bonus cap that's in the capital requirements directive. But, after COVID, and as you said, the, the banking sector itself has kept its head down for 10 years, is any government really going to dare to do that? Uh, wh- where would you see the scope and, and possibility for, for divergence over the over the coming years?
1: I think that's a great question. I mean, so the first things for a couple of general points. Number one, I, I don't think there's any suggestion there's going to be a bonfire of regulation. Yeah. And in fact, you made a very powerful point, which is, quite a lot of what is I an mean, interstate Mifid as an example, but there are other dockets that are the same. Quite a lot of what's in there is actually UK-inspired. Hmm. So, you know, for example, the product um, provider and distributor regime effectively is our old RDR, I mean, with some bells and whistles, you know, things like that. And in fact, you know, the idea that the UK is always more liberal than the other countries, that is that is not always true. So, I, I, I agree with that entirely. I don't think there'll be a bonfire regulation. You know. But, um, Two points may, maybe to make on that. Number one, depending where the EU goes next, and without the UK, the influence of um, perhaps the uh, more market-oriented jurisdictions perhaps will be less. Mm. There won't. There may be some diversions there. So if the EU does go in a more um, dirigiste sort of um, direction, which is possible, that could be one area. Now that's a slightly sort of hypothetical. If if it can happen, but I think that is real prospect that the UK may not follow all of the things going forward. And I thought the Treasury paper was interesting in beginning to touch on that. So that's one point. The second is, um, actually, whether or not in the vast majority of the European regime, there's going to be major change. I think there could be a considerable amount of simplification in the UK regime. The FCA and Treasury PRN begun to talk about that. And could we see some liberalization of some areas? It is a possibility, but the interesting bit when you ask people directly in the city, "What is it you want to get rid of?" <laughs> well, there are one or two things people mention. And there's position limits in commodities. There are some aspects of the transparency regime. You know, there, there are. There are probably one could come up with a list of things, but it's not. It's subject to your point on the bonus cap. It's not some. You know, we want to get rid of a whole of a regulation or some dramatic mm-hmm. thing. It is more likely to be a gradual process.
0: Uh, and do you think that could be managed? I mean the reason I ask is I, I spoke to a, a European official that was pre COVID, and he's not specifically involved in this area, but, but a, a, a highly place official. And he said that the the bulk of EU financial uh, services legislation tends to be um, putting into effect agreements made in Basel and and, and so on. And um, inevitably, when you put something together with 27 or 28 countries using a particular negotiating method, this can sometimes be implemented inefficiently. And his hope was that a single country implementing these things would actually do it more efficiently and could provide a sort of template for the EU you know this is an EU official yeah. do, do you think that's the kind of position we could end up in if 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 both sides show some goodwill
1: I think you've absolutely hit on the point where there's a will there's a way mm-hmm. you know, objectively if you actually look at the realities of the financial services discussion from what we've just been talking about there isn't great proposed divergence there are some areas potentially. It is completely correct that the UK could well be a very good model, as it is for other countries around the world. I mean, often Singapore and Australia and other jurisdictions look to what the UK does. In a in with a with goodwill on both sides, there would be definitely an opportunity to have a sensible two-way dialogue, pretty much equivalent uh, sort of standards with some tweaks. The problem at the moment is the goodwill isn't there. Mm. And So, unfortunately, financial services is caught up in a much larger discussion which ties into all sorts of um, fairly unhelpful instincts on both sides that have nothing to do with financial services. And I think that's been the dilemma of our sector throughout this, that actually, uh, if you talk privately to officials, I think, on both sides – the general gist has been well on financial services and we actually you know had a pretty good negotiation and we're probably not that far apart yeah. but unfortunately it's got, we're caught up with a much larger discussion
0: yeah well uh one final question and on that score i mean do, do you have plans already to update the book next year once we're on the other side of this
1: we have been talking to the publishers about that um i think i think the dilemma with the book is uh is the same as the original dilemma which is a from the moment you decide to update it to the moment you actually get to publish the update, who knows what's actually going to happen. Um, And so it is a bit of a demo, but it does make sense to update it. And I think uh, the realities are, you know, whichever way things go later this year, it probably would be a really good thing to do because there's going to be demand. I mean, on the assumption that we're not going to have complete certainty. And I suppose my final comment on this would be, I think, we're not going to have a settled state for a very long time. So the, the book and things like it are probably going to be in demand, I would have
0: thought. Yeah. What, what was the lead time between um, each chapter? Well, probably the minimum lead time between writing a chapter and, and, it, and it getting published. I mean, how much scope do you have to, to I, I
1: think. I think the problem, I mean, this is more a question for AUP, is because it's yeah. a physical book as opposed yeah. to an internet book. You know, just, just getting the type set done and everything takes three or four months by the time you've kind of died, proofing all the rest of it, which, you know, in Brexit land is an eternity. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And that's the difficulty. So, I mean, we we are actually going to have a discussion around the best way of doing it going forward. But, um, that is one of the problems with a book on this area that life is so fast moving.
0: Yeah. Well, to remind our listeners uh, today, Jonathan Herbst and I have been discussing uh, Brexit and financial regulation published in March by Oxford University Press and perhaps to be republished next year. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Pleasure.